Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, yours truly, a.k.a. J. Mace, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. Right now with me, I have a legend in the music and television industry. If you listen to music or watch TV within the past 30, 40 years, you've heard this man's productions, his songs on various shows such as NCIS, Oprah, Status Shock, and if you've listened to BBD, Ralph Tresvant, New Kids on the Block, Prince, so on and so forth, then you know this man, and also an author, he has a book called In Tune, which is all about making sure that you stay center with music, and how can that translate to being a better you, I'm paraphrasing. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Richard Wolf, Mr. Wolf, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover. I love that beautiful introduction. Thank you very much. It's 16 years of hard work, but hey, who's counting? <laughs> well, congratulations on, on hanging in there for 16 years. That's, yeah. a, that's an accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I do this on the side of my day gig, but yeah. this is all about that passion of music and celebrating those who've made a huge impact musically and just giving them their flowers and a platform to speak their truth. And that's what we try to do here at Beyond the Album Cover. Sweet, sweet. Yes, sir. So let's go ahead and jump right on in. So where were you born and how did your love of music come into play? What was the first 45 you brought and... Did you play any instruments before going behind the scenes and doing production? Okay, that's a five-part question. It's like a Swiss Army knife. We got time. We got time. Swiss Swiss it up like a gift knife. Yeah, I was born in New York, and uh, I was doing music since, I don't know, I was three years old. I was writing songs in my head, and I played piano when I was six. I started to play the piano. At 14, I took up guitar. And so, you know, those two instruments were my instruments and uh, still are my instruments. And uh, those are the first two parts. What was the third part? I forgot. Third part was what was the first record that you remember going down to a record store and buying that made you say, hey, I want to get into the business? Well, I, I, I wasn't thinking of the business when I was a little kid. I was just thinking about music, right? So... The first record, uh, probably, I would say the Kingston Trio. It was a, it was a folk group. Uh, that probably was it. And then it was another folk group, the Weavers. Um, and then the Beach Boys. Yeah, I was into the Beach Boys. And then after that, it was Ray Charles. So, um, you know, those are the early influences, the extremely early influences, and also classical music. I was exposed to a lot of classical music. And the thing about <clears throat> living in New York is when you walk on the street, there's just street musicians um, in my neighborhood and, and, and wherever I would go. There was in the subway, there were street musicians playing some of the instruments they played, they made at home, you know, like, and that, that was very influential. Listening to street musicians uh, was deeply influential. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned the Beach Boys. Can you talk about quickly the influence of Pet Sounds and why it resonates still to this day in the industry production wise and why it is pretty much on almost everybody's 500 definitive albums of all time? 
you know, the thing about the Beach Boys to me was, you know, people talk about pet sounds and that was very experimental. Um, there were production techniques that uh, Brian Wilson used that hadn't been used before. But for me, the Beach Boys were a couple of things. The harmonies were just out of this world. And this before the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles, their harmonies were very influenced by the Beach Boys. So, you know, their vocal harmonies to me were very striking and just really uh, lovely chord changes, you know, guitar work. Mm -hmm. Brian Wilson of Jeans. And it's funny that you mentioned Beach Boys and how their earlier works were very teeny bopper, surfer records. But when Pet Sounds came along, it was almost as if they're saying, we want to ditch that earlier sound, go towards something new. And Brian Wilson probably was studying the Beatles and Sgt. Peppers and say, hey, I got to make something that's just as good, if not better than Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, that's probably right. That's, that's that was around that time, I guess. I was a, a I was a preteen then, anyway. So for me, those songs, those early Beach Boy songs, were meaningful. You know, I was a, I was in that demographic of being a little kid. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I, there was this loop that the Beatles were influenced by the Beach Boys, and then the Beach Boys were influenced by the Beatles. And you mentioned going up in New York. I'm sure your radio down was tuned into Music Radio 77 WABC with Cousin Brucey and everybody that came on WABC, correct? That was one of them. That, you know, that was one of the stations, yeah. Mm, and this was back in the days, people, when AM radio ruled, where at night you could hear WABC further south beyond New York, and they had fans everywhere across the country, pretty much anywhere if you were in any major market like WLS out of Chicago with John Records Landecker, CKLW out of Windsor, Canada, which Detroit and areas around there heard that. So it was a beautiful time for music and for radio in general because AM meant you had a larger reach, but for those smaller stations, you had to make sure your signal got shut off by a certain time in order to protect the signal for your big market stations. All right, that's a lesson in radio history. Yeah, I, I, I know my, I, I got my degree in broadcasting, so I know all about AM, FM, and all of that good jazz. So I understand you have a connection with Muscle Shows. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was a freshman in college at George Washington University, and there was a singer there. And the, uh, the memory's a little foggy here, how she got to learn one of my songs, but somehow she did. She had a record deal at Muscle Shoals. At that time, Muscle Shoals was like the center of funk um, in, in the US in the music business. You had people like Aretha Franklin recording there, Wilson Pickett. And uh, she had a record deal there and her producer liked the song that I had written. He came up uh, with one of those reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders and went to my dorm room and recorded me singing. And then I had a record deal. Um, then they signed me to a record deal there. Mm -hmm. And Rick Smith was the owner and the founder of Fame Studios down in Muscle Shoals, correct? Right, but this was a, there were a couple of studios there. He had Fame Studios and then they had the Muscle Shoals sound rhythm section that worked there. And then they broke off and started their own studio and there was another um, studio, Quinn Ivy. So I was working with the Muscle Shoals people and Quinn Ivy. Okay. Not, not, uh, not, yeah. 
All right. Now with Muscle Shows and the home of funk, like say the Reefa Franklin and other artists went down to Muscle Shows, Alabama to get that sound. And then also at the same time, we have Stacks out of Memphis. Now, can you give the variations and differences between Muscle Shows funk and Stacks funk that was coming out of Memphis, both in all the subsidiary labels in and around Memphis? You know, that's a tough question. That's a very tough question. I worked with uh, Muscle Shows people like Wayne Perkins and I worked with Memphis people like Steve Cropper and uh, Duck Dunn, who are Stax people, as you know. And, um, you know, the difference, one big thing that they had in common was, of course, their openness to black music, which at that time was pretty daring down south. It was uh, really uh, uh, very intensely racist. And these musicians were not. Um, and they were very influenced by black music. So that's something that they had in common. And, you know, we used to say in New York, you play a little bit in front of the beat. In LA, they play on the beat. And in the South, they play a little behind the beat, you know, because the South is the, the quote unquote, the lazy South. And that's part of the of, of funkiness, you know, to be a little bit behind the beat and that kind of funk. Um, I think there's a simplicity to the music of uh, both, but it, it stacks relied, I think, with Steve Cropper on a on a simpler kind of riffing, and horns. Their 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 horns were tremendous, whereas Muscle Shoals was more on the rhythm section. You know, the bass and the drums, and the guitar work too. So uh, they have a lot in common, and they had some distinct characteristics because of the the people, the different characters that were there too. Mm, and the beautiful thing, once again, about that time period is that while you had Motown taking R&B to the masses in the world, you had Muscle Shows and Stats bringing that raw, gritty funk. And then also a lot of those indie labels that were popping up, let's say Mississippi, Georgia, Deep City Records down in Miami. And you had a good variety of funk, no matter what part of the region you were in. And if you had a big regional hit, Major labels will do this, knock, 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 and sign you and get your single out to a wider audience. Yeah, man, you're the master. You know a lot more about this than I do. Man, I, I kid you not, I spent years and years reading Jed, Rolling Stones, Spin, watching Video Soul, Soul Train, and just a pure fan and love of all things music and just using this platform to show my passion, express it with people like you. That's beautiful. You, you, you know this stuff. That's great. Right. And uh, funny thing about Motown, I went to Salt Lake City a couple years ago. My wife and I, we saw the Motown, the musical. And we, as we were leaving outside, there was this gentleman taking pictures with people. And I recognized him out the corner of my eye. And I told my wife, that's the Mondoja, Holland Doja Holland. She was like, who? And I was reading off his stats like it was a basketball card. Like, you know, he did this, 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 this. So I got a chance to see him ask questions. So that was cool. And then we went to Memphis for a vacation. I got a chance to go see Stax Records and Sun and actually got to see Al Green at his church. And I was trying my hardest not to fanboy the whole time because I'm like, that man I grew up listening to and he sounded just as good as the record. And this just goes to show you how much of a tourist attraction that is in Memphis. There was a tour bus of international visitors. They came in for Sunday service 
one person tried to slide him a program to sign while going around getting the money in the collection plate. So I found that kind of funny, but I was respectable. Because of course, being from North Carolina, you got to be respectable when you're in a, the house of the Lord, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. All right. So you sign the deal and then Warner Chappelle comes in and you're writing songs. Now, is the process of that when you're writing for a publishing company difficult as far as getting your songs shopped? Or is it more of you have somebody that likes what you do and say, hey, whenever you get me some new material, send it to me so I could get first exclusive to see if I have any artists on my label that would like to cut it? Well, like you're talking about the differences back, you know, decades ago in, in the record business is now the same thing for publishing. When I signed with Warner Chapel, <clears throat> those publishers, as you said, they were uh, trying to pitch you to other artists. That was the idea. Now it's different. I mean, now you, I, from what my understanding is, most publishers rely on the songwriter producers to get their own covers to get their own productions and they help with other aspects, uh, financial aspects and other business aspects. But when I was signed to Warner Chapel, I was a staff writer. I worked on movies, um, Karate Kid, Back to School, uh, Madonna, who's that, who's that girl, stuff like that. And then I had the, you know, records that were made that, because they pitched my songs to certain artists or record companies. Mm -hmm. So what's your take on the show Songland where up and coming songwriters pitch their songs to judges, then they go into the studios, rework them, pitch it again for a final product and then get a placement. Do you think that that's the new wave now or does it still rely on that old process of, hey, let's meet up with so-and-so at this studio, learn the craft, learn the art and go through those growing pains of not getting placements? Well, I mean, now you you work and you make records right in your bedroom or in your kitchen, wherever it might be. And then you use social media to get noticed. I mean, you don't have to rely anymore whatsoever on the gatekeepers, especially publishers. And they're the last ones in line, really. As far as Songland specifically is concerned, and I know you're asking more generically, but I don't know that I mean, a, a very good friend of mine is a producer on that show. And um, I heard great things about it, but I don't know very much about it. I hear it's got great producers and they, they do write great songs. That's what I heard, but that's a special, you know, that's I think very special. I have students now who have 60,000 followers and they're very, very young and they made their records in their, you know, in their houses or apartments with 20 roommates, you know, and uh, and they're doing pretty well mm, it on kinda, their own. Yeah, it kind of mm. reminds me of the early days of hip hop where it was do it yourself, the home studio where you had to use what you had or you maybe borrow somebody's machine to record this, use the bathroom shower or a closet as your vocal booth, use a toilet paper wrapper to give effects and more echo, more reverb. And to think about what Teddy Riley was able to do in the home studio when he recorded those tracks for Guy, Bobby Brown, the list goes on and on. And to think that all of it came from his bedroom 
at the St. Nicholas Projects in Harlem and that he will usher in a new sound that we all know and love as New Jack Swing. Yeah. I didn't realize that Teddy Riley did so much in the home studio. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was saying, and I believe it was an interview with Red Bull Music Academy, that he was listening to the show that he did for Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick and wanted to add a shaker to it. And I believe he had to do it ingenuously because he didn't have the equipment at the time to get a shaker sound. So you had to be innovative, make lemonade out of lemons. And then Marley Mall said, because I heard the show by Dougie Fresh Slick Rick, I wanted to have a shaker sound for Make the Music With Your Mouth for Biz Marquee. So he said he just went into the microphone and just did <laughs> to get that shaker-like effect for the record. And once again, he did his in the home studio, and it's just amazing to see how they were able to create classics given the technological limitations of the day. Yeah. Yeah, so do you remember your first production setup? You mean technically speaking? Yes, sir. Like as far as, you know, what equipment did you use when you did your first productions? Was it a four track, well, was it, eight track? It was a four track um, that I did myself because when Muscle Shows, they had studios there, right? That we, we would go into. And uh, in Washington, D.C., you know, we'd rent a studio and go in there in San Francisco, rent the studios. But my own setup was a reel to reel. And an AKG 414 microphone, probably a TAC four track reel to reel. And that was it. Yeah, and maybe I had a UAD um, compressor, LA4, I think at that time was it? We didn't have an LA, I didn't have an LA2A or anything fancy like that. Maybe an LA4, which was cool. And, and then Mike, and that was it. Mm, so pretty much it was old school bare bones. You make it with what you got and it came out to be good work. And this was back in the days, folks, where labels had to pay for studio time. And if you didn't have it together, it was going to come out of your advance or somebody was going to pay for it. And then before everybody started building their own studios, you had to rent time out. And if you really wanted to get a good session in, you would do what's, what was called a blackout where you would black it out for days at a time or 24 hours, depending on how long you wanted to do it. Because I remember Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis was telling the Donnie Simpson in an interview on Video Soul that the reason why they had built Flight Time in Minneapolis was because that they didn't want to go to any other studios, be able to work freely and not have to worry about rushing because somebody got a session an hour or two after them and they just wanted to record freely and come and go as they please. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So do you find that process more conducive where you're able to go into the studio, not have to worry about sessions, and be able to work at your own pace and not feel like you have to speed up? Oh man, it's, it's amazing. I mean, today what you can do is, is just so much better. I mean, people, we're lucky, you know, we're very, very lucky to live in an era where you can produce music and correct mistakes and on your own, you know, you have the freedom and autonomy. You don't have to rent studio time and rely on other musicians and engineers. It's, it's a fantastic situation in terms of producing music. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. And for somebody like Prince, that was a godsend because as we all know, he was a studio junkie where he ate, slept, and breathed the studio. Susan Rogers, who was his primary engineer, was telling stories of how he kind of always had the mindset of always keep the tapes rolling because you never know when the inspiration would strike. And then band members were saying how we could be done doing a show, maybe two or three hours. And then he wanted to go do a jam session after that or have a new idea after that. It was like your own call because you never know when the inspiration would strike with him. And that was just a testament to his genius. Yeah, and genius has its, um, many times it has its claws, you know, it, it has its thorns. And I know people in the record business that are similar in terms of their fanaticism for music, and they're very, very successful because they are so passionate about it and so focused on it. But when it ceases to do what it did previously, whether in terms of making you very relevant, like Prince, he was used to at one point, anything he put out, people would listen to. It, it mattered to people. And eventually he started to put out music that didn't matter anymore. He mattered. I mean, he could sell out concerts 365 days of the year and make hundreds of millions of dollars, but his records didn't matter anymore. And that he couldn't take. That, that, that's really what uh, killed him in the end. And I've seen that. And that's, that's the thing about genius or, or that's, that passion, that solo focus that, uh, that music can have. You know, it's important to have balance. It's important to balance that. It's a hard balance because it's that devotion that makes it so good, that makes you so creative. But on the other hand, there are musicians that have long-standing careers uh, and still make music like Herbie Hancock, for instance, um, and the list goes on and on. Now you have J. Cole and, and uh, Kendrick Lamar, and they balance their, their uh, devotion to music with other spiritual or con contemplative practices like meditation, for instance. Mm. And it's a tricky slope between creativity and commerce because as we all know, some labels are more risk averse where we want an album that's the same as what made us money and give it to us by fourth quarter because once control broke for Janet, A&M wanted her to do a control part two because it made them money, but she was brave enough to say, no, I want to do something different. I want to do a concept album, be socially conscious, and therefore Rhythm Nation was born. And I found it very amazing on A&M's part that they weren't micromanaging and let her, Jimmy and Terry, go off to Minneapolis to record without any label interference. Say, hey, you guys do what you do. Turn us the draft in by this time and a final cut by this time. We're not going to meddle. Yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a problem too, is that people, when they're successful, have some success. Their business partners might be their managers, could be their record company. They push them beyond you know, the point of uh, sustainability, really. Mm -hmm. sometimes yeah and i went back and listened to janet's first two records before prior to hooking up with jimmy and terry great albums very under promoted you had production and songs by leon silvers renee angela and i was like man great records but she really found the sweet spot once she got with jimmy and terry because they allowed her to say hey what do you want to sing about 
What do you want to write about? And let it build organically. And then we saw that formula be successful for her and then successful for New Edition once they hooked up with Jimmy and Terry for the Heartbreak album. Right. Which I found very dope and Heartbreak, my favorite album of all time. Now, how did you and Epic hook up? Oh, okay. That's a good question. So uh, as you mentioned, I was at Warner Chapel and <clears throat> there was a woman there, Dana Kasha, who uh, was making tape copies. And she heard that I was looking for an intern and she called me up and said, you know, I know you're into hip hop. She said, you're the only one that I know is into hip hop. At that time, I didn't know anybody else who was into hip hop. Uh, in LA. Yeah, there was one club. It was called, I think it was called The Radio. And Ice-T was the, the one act. And he had a crew. He had his crew there. And that was it. That, that was it. I know you, I know Dre and the record, Wrecking Crew were out there too. Um, but uh, in terms of LA, Hollywood area, that was, the, the one club was The Radio. And um, so anyway, she said, I have a friend He's 17 years old. He's a DJ. He DJs in, in the clubs. And, and uh, he's, he's a hip hop DJ. And he was 17 in high school. And, uh, and we just hooked up. He, he was really good at drums. He played drums and he was really good at DJing. And I had my strengths in terms of guitar and keyboards and and my background in songwriting, and and uh, we got we said, hey, let's do this together. Even though I was a lot older than he was, um, but uh, and that's what we did. We just started to make music together. Mm, and how is that meshing of when you bring someone into the fold and not overpower, learn the strengths and weaknesses of the other, meld it together so that it can be a smooth, clean, crisp product? Because I know sometimes you can run into that friction when you bring someone in and there's may not be a meshing to where it feels like one is trying to overpower the other with their style and their sense of sensibility. I don't think that musically speaking, we ever had that problem. I mean, we both had this love for hip hop. At that time in LA, hip hop was very underground. Um, it was <laughs> nowhere near as popular as it is now. Uh, many radio stations would not play it. In fact, we put out records. We had records where they would take, you know, we had singers for this record, the Barrio Boys, there was a rap inside of it and they took out, they would take the rap out um, so we had this love of hip hop and he did what he, he could do. And I, and I do what I can do. And we respected each other. There was a real respect for each other's abilities. And, and again, this love of hip hop is what united us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's almost like hip hop was, was at that time was a religion, you know, it was, a, it was, you know, it, because it was so socially and culturally important. You know, we're talking about the, the Bush era, uh, the first Bush. And, uh, you know, the, the, the neighborhoods, the urban areas were just being neglected and uh, people didn't have a voice. And uh, the hip hop gave people a voice that didn't have a voice. Yeah, it we most definitely did. 
Yeah, it most definitely did. And you mentioned how mainstream radio wouldn't even touch rap because raps were edited out of singles back in the day. If you notice on cassettes, they would have radio edit without rap and with rap. And then if you were in New York, you had Mr. Magic, Mr. Magic's Rap Attack on WBLS, DJ Red Alert, Chuck Chill Out on 98.7 Kiss. Then out in LA, you had a little teeny tiny AM station, 1580 Stereo, KDAY. Be sure to go to YouTube to check out my throwback interview with Mr. Greg Mack of the Greg Mack Mac Greg Attack. Mack. Greg Mack. There you go. Mm-hmm. He was the one DJ, right? The one, the one radio DJ in LA. Mm-hmm. And I found that quite interesting because like BLS and Kiss on the East Coast, they they parted rap music where it only got played on the weekends or late Friday nights. So it wouldn't affect the diaries or the books. But K-Day played it all day, every day. And the one thing I noticed about West Coast hip hop during that time, pre-NWA, Dr. Dre and Snoop, it was very high energy dance kind of sort of like with Egyptian Lover, LA Dream Team, um, world class wrecking crew and Captain Rap. I want to say that was one of the first records that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis did out in LA. Uh, I believe Captain Rap, Hard Times, I Just Can't Stand It. I believe was the name of the record. You know, uh, Epic and I did work with Craig Mack, and we, 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 uh, we did a record with him, with Greg Mack. And you know, in New York, they had, um, besides the radio station that you're talking about, when I would go to New York, I would watch Manhattan Cable. And they had shows on there. And I uh, can't remember some of the na- the names. There was one, I think it was Goldie something. They had these shows and they play rap like um, Rob Bass, mm-hmm. you know, It Takes Two, and Dougie Fresh. And you'd see these videos the very, very, very bare bones videos that, that these rappers were making on Manhattan Cable like two in the morning, you know? And, and these, these underground shows, there were a couple of them. And uh, I used to love that. I used to love, when I was in New York, I just stay up watching these, these you know, rap videos. Yep, the days of public access. And I got to give big mention to Uncle Ralph McDaniels and Video Music Box. Also go to YouTube and where you can find Beyond the Album Cover podcast to listen to my throwback interview with Mr. Lionel C. Martin. Wow. The uh, the video director? Yes, Mr. Lionel Martin, a.k.a. the VK. I believe he directed the remix video for BBD's Do Me, I believe. He did. He directed a lot of stuff. He did. He did Laquan. He did uh, Belvin DeVoe. Yep, he did quite. He did a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. also too, at this same time, you had other regions of the country that had their own video shows, and you got to see that rap wasn't monolithic. It was different from what was going on in L.A. or New York or Houston or Miami or Cleveland. Everybody had their own sound and their own unique flavor. And then if you would go up. Hours north to Oakland in the Bay Area, you had Hammer, you had Too Short, E-40, and then you had the Soul Beat Network, which was founded by, I believe, Chuck Johnson in 1979. It pretty much showcased the whole African-American experience in Oakland, and we know Oakland has a great tradition of bands from Sly and the Family Stone, Grand Central Station, Sheila E., Tony, 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 Santana. The list goes on in all of all of the great funk bands that come out of the Bay Area. True. Mm -hmm. True. 
Now tell me about the first time you hooked up with New Edition and realizing that these guys were something special because we see them now as our generation's temptations and they gotten their flowers many times over and appreciated more so by the mainstream, in my opinion, because of the BET miniseries that came out in January of 2017. Well, Epic knew the, the brothers of Ronnie DeVoe and New Edition was, was already legendary when, when, uh, we, when I hooked up with them. And Epic was friendly with them and through, through the twins, he was friendly with Ron. And Ron brought, brought Rick over and Mike to, to our studio, to my studio. And um, they just loved what we were doing because we, it's, we sampled each other. You know, at that time, hip hop was totally based on sampling. Nobody was doing anything live. So I would play guitar live and, and some bass and, and, or hire Reggie McBride, who was Stevie Wonder's bass player and keyboards and, and Epic would play the drums and we'd sample each other. So we were using original samples. It was like a somewhere between live and sampling. And they loved that because, you know, they grew up uh, with the Jackson five when you had real instruments, but it was hip hop because we were sampling and uh, we just hit it off and started to work together. But they were already legendary in terms of parts of new edition. They weren't respected as solo artists, you know, Bobby Brown was huge, Ralph Tresvant was huge, and then Johnny Gill. They weren't respected yet, but they were, as part of New Edition, they were already very, very well esteemed and, and, uh, and successful. Right, so talk about the process of going into the studio with them in the Poison album and saying, we're gonna take you guys, give you your own sound and blueprint that's totally different from New Edition because listening to interviews with the three of them, they were saying how we, they were listening to hip hop real heavy, but couldn't really go full throttle because of the New Edition brand being class, the choreography slick, a la Temptations, Whispers, Blue Magic, the Shylight, so on and so forth. Yeah, it was their vision. Hip hop smoothed out on the R&B tip with a pop feel appeal to it. That they had that vision, uh, which hadn't happened yet, of combining hip hop with R&B and crossing it over into pop. There was nobody who, who did that successfully. You know, Guy incorporated uh, R&B and hip hop elements, but they didn't cross over pop. They stayed in the R&B. Um, it, was, it was the Poison album, the vision of those three, Belle DeVoe, that, that made possible the hip hop that exists today, which is a crossover of hip hop, R&B and pop. And they hired the producers that shared that vision. And we certainly um, shared that vision with them and helped them realize that vision. Mm, it's crazy to see how Poison is still an impactful record 30 years later. Buster Rhymes just recently sampled Poison for Out of My Mind off his hot album, ELE 2. So it just goes to yeah. show you, it is still a banger. You can still play Poison in the club. People will still dance to it. Yeah, you're right. That, that's pretty cool. The, the, the Buster Rhymes record, yeah. Mm, now, with the Word to the Mother record, did you guys know that it was going to feature all six or was it originally just a BBD track and then later decided to get Bobby, Ralph, and Johnny on it? 
Well, it was based on a track that was on the Poison album. And they came and they said, look, we want to do a remix of that track. And we want to have everybody from New Edition on it. And so that was our intent, that the remix would be, Word to the Mother would be a New Edition reunion of sorts, which it was. It was a great experience. Everybody was there. Bobby and Ralph and Johnny and Belvedere DeVoe, everybody was there and uh, it was great. It was, it was really heartwarming and everybody was, was very uplifted by it. Right, because I remember seeing the 1990 MTV Video Music Awards performance where everybody did their solo cuts and then at the end they did a new edition medley and just thinking how that was amazing to see everybody white hot at the top of their game and to see all six come out in the suits with the square and the in the arm sleeve and the choreography. And I'm like, man, these guys, it enough cannot be said about New Edition. They're my favorite group of all time. And I just told Brooke, <laughs> I was just amazed to see that performance and to see all six on stage at their peak when everybody was on the top of their game solo-wise. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Because what group can you know of where everybody branch off solely, have success, come back together as a group, have more success with the Home Again album, still be loved, celebrated, and revered 40 plus years later and set the standard for every boy band to follow? And that leads me to my next question. Talk about you and Epic's work on New Kids Face the Music album, which I felt was criminally underrated. Um, you know, again, it was, uh, I love those guys, especially got closer to Donnie and Jordan Knight. Um, very talented, very serious about the music. And, uh, it was a joy to work with them. Nothing but respect, mutual respect. Mm. Uh, they're humble. They were very humble. Especially, for, you know, every time they'd come into the studio, they'd be followed by cars full of fans, usually young women. And, uh, and then they come in the studio and just be very humble and listen to you and listen to your suggestions. They were easy to work with. Mm, yeah, I had a chance to interview Danny. It was about a year prior to New Kids Reforming. We were talking about the Face the Music album. And... I got the sense from him that it was an album that they really wanted to do all along, even during the hanging tough step-by-step -step period. But when the whole pop phenomenon hit, you had to go with the pop feel because that's your demographic. But new kids to me were R&B at the core. There's a video of them performing at a club in Boston. They were wearing Jordan tracksuits. It was for WILD, mm -hmm. 1090 AM out of Boston. And I had to tell people, I'm like, hey, they earned it the hard way, you know, performing in small clubs, doing shows with rapping R&B acts. They even did a version of Please Don't Go Girl that only got airplay on BET. But once the whole pop thing exploded, that was when everything shifted. But new kids were hip hop and R&B at the core, especially yep. the, all five of them. Very true. <clears throat> you know, Donnie is responsible for, uh, he's one of the most uh, significant people responsible for Dre and the Chronic getting signed to Interscope. 
Oh, really? Donnie. Oh, yeah. Donnie told Jimmy Iovine, you know, Donnie had uh, his brother, Marky, they, his, uh, Marky Mark and the uh, Good Vibrations. So Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch saved Interscope from bankruptcy, pretty much. And Donnie had a production deal there. He was the hip hop guru at Interscope and Dre and Suge Knight come along trying to get a record deal. Nobody will give them a record deal. They're afraid of gangster rap. <clears throat> and um, Jimmy hears the record. He knows he doesn't really understand hip hop. So what does he do? He asks a few people. One of the people he asks is his hip hop producer who he has a deal with, Donnie. And Donnie tells him, you gotta sign Dre. You're crazy if you don't sign Dre. And I saw Dre uh, at a club come up to Donnie and thank him profusely for helping him get his record deal. Wow, that's what we do here at Beyond the Album Cover. We give this exclusives. I never knew that Donnie Wahlberg played a role in Dr. Dre getting his deal with Interscope. Now, around this time, Chronic drops, Snoop was on deep cover, nothing but a G thing, and that set Snoop up for Doggy Style to come out the following year and we just have a massive explosion of rap into the mainstream. And of course, MC Hammer, two years prior, two or three years prior, excuse me, with uh, Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him, did pop numbers. And people need to understand and respect Hammer for what he did, not only for rap, but for the music biz in general. And he made capital a lot of this. Okay. A okay. lot of money. So talk to me a little bit about the impact of Hammer and what he was able to do in the, in the business with the units he was moving. Well, I don't have any relationship to Hammer, really. So I don't know too much about, about um, I, I don't have any thought. I can't help you with that because I didn't work with him and I, I have no thoughts about him, really. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. So what was the production process like for keeping my fingers crossed on the Face the Music album. And I believe wow. Joey was singing lead on that, correct? I don't remember. Uh, Joey was the lead on that? I I mean- I, I think I don't so, don't quote. Jordan, Jordan Knight. Jordan was I lead. Think, I think Jordan did the most. What I remember is Jordan doing the, the, uh, the heavy lifting on that. I think they all had a part. Everybody had a part to play, but my memory is that Jordan did most of the verses and Joey did a verse, but I remember working more with Jordan on, on those verses. Mm. And you had everybody on the hook. Um, yeah, so I think Jordan did more, um, but they all, they all played a part. Mm, yeah, dope record, dope album. And you mentioned Barrio Boys earlier, Barrio Boys, to me, very underrated group. The Howie Roll album, dope album. And they had the privilege and the honor of doing a track with the late Selena before she passed. And I felt that Barrio Boys should have been bigger here in the U.S. I felt that they came too early right before the Latin explosion took off here in the States. Wow, you're amazing. How you know all these records? And then you like these records. That's amazing. Yeah, and Barrio That's Boys, amazing. they were put together by Joe Jacket, who was a part of New Kids on the Blocks camp. And right. he talked to Maurice and said, hey, I want to put together a group that can do what New Kids 
are doing, but do it in Spanish. And that's where Barrio Boys came in. And also right. on that album, production was done by Full Force, who I felt laid the groundwork for what was to come with New Jack Swing, with Teddy and everybody to come after. But everybody in the mainstream industry knows them from House Party. And then they hit Pop Pay Dirt once All I Had to Give for Backstreet Boys became a smash hit. All right, well, when I write my memoir, I'm going to have to call you up first because you know more than I do about what, <laughs> what the record I worked on. Man, I, I, I'm tr truly flattered, truly humbled, you know, by that compliment, like I've been stating, it's all about just sharing the love and the, and the knowledge for the music. Now, I noticed some of the plaques that you got in the back of us. I see one of them is BBD's Poison. Now, what are the other plaques that are behind the wall? And this is for those who are listening to the audio version of this interview. Mr. Wolf has plaques on plaques on plaques. Well, all the people you mentioned, Barrio Boys uh, in Latin America, Platinum, and um, Belva DeVoe and Ralph Tresman. So all the people you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now, Ralph's debut album, I loved. Top to bottom, I loved it. And it was just great just to see, like I said, all six members shining at the same time. And then who would have thunk that Michael Bivens would take his A&R talent and discover four young men out of Philadelphia that would change the face of the music industry, and that's Boys to Men. And they were the inspiration, along with new kids, for the infamous Lou Pearlman to put together Backstreet Boys. Yep. True. Right. De definitely, definitely that. And then also, fun fact, people, uh, Bobby Ross Avila was the opening act on the Magic Summer Tour for New Kids. Okay. Yeah, who I thought was really dope, really, really talented. And then once Johnny Wright saw what Maurice was doing, of course, he started working with Backstreet, and then later on in sync. And I just found it to be so cool to wear what was once old. It's considered new, especially what we're seeing now with the whole K-pop movement, you know, with BTS and all of the acts that are coming out. And I felt like the whole K-pop movement is like early 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, teen pop on steroids, because K-pop is a whole nother monster. Yeah. Mm, so how did you end up hooking up, going over on the TV side, composing scores? And is there a difference when on that side of the fence as opposed to being in a studio and producing records? Well, um, at the end of the 90s, a couple of things were happening. I could see that the internet was coming along and uh, that it was about to destroy the record business. I saw that. I went to a conference in 97 in England, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> about the future of digital distribution. And uh, that was when the internet just started. You had dial up, you had to sit there and wait an hour to get one song. But uh, at this conference, somebody from Tower Records stood up and he said, we're doomed. And when he said that, I said, okay. The guy from Tower Records, which is so successful, it's like amazon.com today for the record industry, is saying we're doomed, I better look into this. That was one thing. 
and um, also the influence of NWA on rap and everything was, I wasn't feeling comfortable. Uh, and so I made a conscious decision to go into TV music. I already had been working in film music and I liked it very much. And I thought it would be a good transition also as a family man to get into the TV side. And uh, I saw that there was nobody who could do hip hop with any legitimacy that was interested in getting in TV music. I mean, if you could do hip hop, it was one of two things. You were trying to get a record deal and you were putting out your own independent records or you were trying to get a record deal or you had a record deal. Nobody cared about TV music. So I made records just like I always did, except my customers weren't Warner Brothers records or Sony records. The clientele was Warner Brothers Pictures or Sony Television. And so um, at 1998, I formed the Producers Lab. And as you know, we're in hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of television episodes. And the philosophy was to make records for TV. It wasn't any lower quality. It was the highest quality you could do for television. And there wasn't a big demand for it at first. It was very sort of segregated, but eventually there was more and more demand for it. And we hit a nice sweet spot for about seven years until the record business did implode and people were fleeing the record business to get into TV music. So, and then there is the scoring aspect, which, which is very different because scoring like with, with Static Shock, for instance, or, or other things, um, you are the artist, the composer is the artist. You're no longer creating music and featuring a singer or a rapper. It's like, it's just the instrumental and pretty much you, the composer or the artist. So it's, it's very different in, in that sense. And there are a lot of similarities. I always wanted to have the hip hop influence if I could in the scoring. Um, sometimes I couldn't, sometimes it was electronic, which I also love like for NCIS, but um, it was either electronic or hip hop influences in the instrumentals. Mm. So now when you're scoring, are you able to see the scenes ahead of time? So you kind of sort of know this is the way that I want to go with this scene or you're going off of feel when you get the script and then hoping that the product turns out good before it comes out on air? You know, it really depends on the project. I would say the overwhelming majority of the projects we do today are creating instrumental music for things like football games, you know, the NFL. Or, or sports games, um, maybe it's reality shows where you're just creating instrumentals that people will use as far as instrumentals are concerned. And again, nothing has changed as far as the philosophy of cutting great R&B and hip hop records and licensing those to television shows. So that has not changed in terms of that philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I found it funny that you were mentioning how somebody from Tower Records said we're doomed once the internet was coming and then Napster and Kazaa, Limeshare, Bear Morpheus, all of the MP3 file sharing sites. I had a chance to interview Steve Greenberg, who was A&R at Mercury, founder of S-Curve, and we were talking about that. And I could kind of sense that it felt like the industry was eating high off the hog, so to speak. We're making all this money 
charging customers almost 20 bucks for a CD or 15, 16 bucks for a tape, who's going to want to sit down in front of 56K dial-up internet and download a record? But little did they know that people were willing to do that. And I was, and I kind of think from the outside looking in, it was their hubris that kind of led to the decline of the music industry where people are not going to go to HMV, Camelot, Tower, Virgin Mega Store, insert local mom and pop record store here and go buy a cassette or a CD. Yeah, you have an incredible grasp of the of history and the, the landscape and the perspective. You're right. There was hubris, there was fear, arrogance, arrogance in the record business, uh, which was one of the reasons I was happy to leave it. The, you, you, you put your finger on that correctly, I, I think. Mm, so how do you maintain like being true to yourself, whereas in the industry, of course, there are some people that's you're one way one minute, another way the next. And it's all about getting in good with somebody. And if you're not willing to make certain concessions, then it could be a long haul because it seems like it is a majority from the outside looking in, relationship-oriented business? Well, I think for, 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 for uh, a lot of situations, it's relationship-oriented. I mean, if you want to get a book published and you have a literary agent, that literary agent will have their friends at different publishing companies. Um, that's another industry that I'm that I've learned about, right? Because I have a book, so I I, I saw the the connections between you talking about relationships. Well, the same thing that holds true in the record business holds true in in the publishing, the book publishing business. Now you do have different dimensions, as we mentioned before, because of social media. I think artists have a lot more leverage than they did before. And if you're an artist and you're getting a lot of followers and a lot of streaming on Spotify. Then you go to a record label, a major label, and they can blow you up. But all the major labels will come after you. I mean, it's a different, it's a different dynamic. Um, so you don't, you're not dependent totally on having certain relationships uh, with the record business now. Mm -hmm. It feels like we're back to the days of mom and pop indie labels are out in LA, like when. Easy e and Ice Cube prior to NWA where they were in CIA, they would sell records out of the trunk, go down to McCola, the pressing plant, get those records pressed, pop them out the trunk. Same thing what Hammer and Two Short was doing, pop it out the trunk, sell your units. And if you make enough noise, the majors will come to you. It feels like we're reverting back to that now with the internet and how it completely cut out the middleman. Yeah, good point. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and that's what it's all about, getting your streams, getting your followers, getting your impressions up, so that way you can have a buzz. Now with your book, In Tune, how did that come about and explain the connection between music, meditation, and Zen and how it all is one and the same? Well, yeah, we talked about leaving the record business and getting into TV, so I thought TV would be less stressful, but it was a lot more stressful. And I had a panic attack. And when I went to the therapist, he prescribed meditation to me. And I had been trying to meditate my whole life, but now I felt that I better do this because I don't want to have these panic attacks. And um, I was able to, to overcome a lot of the 
issues that led to anxiety and panic because of meditation. And um, when that happened, I, I saw the connection between music in terms of in music, you have to focus on what you're doing. And you have to, we talked about this before, that you're totally immersed in what you're doing, you're concentrating. And as a musician, you practice. You know, you sit down, if you make mistakes in playing the song, you don't beat yourself up and say, I can't do this. You just persevere and you keep going till you get it right. And uh, I was able to do that in music and meditation. If my mind got distracted, I, I would beat myself up. Well, I made the connection with music and say, wait, your mind will get distracted. Don't beat yourself up. It's just like making a mistake on the piano and the guitar. You just play it again. And when I made that connection, I was able to successfully meditate, have a practice, a meditation practice. And when I saw these connections, I said, you know what, everybody who's a musician should know this. You should know that you already know how to do this other practice because you're a musician. You can take these abilities that you have in music and, and use them in mindfulness and in meditation practice. And then now extends to people that are serious about listening to music. Because when you listen to music, you're totally focused, you're concentrated, your mind, body, feeling are all going in one direction. That doesn't very, happen very often in life, but it happens when you're immersed in music and it happens when you're immersed in meditation. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw this, I started to write a book. It took me about seven, eight years to finish the book from the time I started it. I think I started in 2007 and it was released in 2019. And so it took a very, very long time to write it. It took, I think, a couple of years after I was signed, uh, had a publishing deal to actually put it out. So it was a long, long process of writing the book. Mm. So now when you sign your publishing deal, was it where you had to turn in a lot of drafts before the final copy? And it's almost kind of like the same thing when pitching a record and you're bringing revisions, revisions, revisions before you get that final copy in to go to press. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know how you know this, but you're right. I had, in my case, I think a lot of people's case, unless you're Stephen King or John Bolton or somebody's gonna, or Michelle Obama, you have a lot of different drafts. I had six different drafts. You're right about that. Um, and that, that's what took a long time. I think it was a good, more than a year of just re revising stuff. Uh, writing a book is much, much harder than making records, in my opinion. It's much, much harder if you're, you're on your own and you can't, there are no lucky accidents like there are in the studio. You know, you can have a lucky accident making a record. You can't have a lucky accident writing a book. It's, it all comes from nothing, from nowhere. Where in the studio, you have all these toys you can play with that'll generate some music and you can put some words together, but the book is much, much harder. Yeah, I've never heard of a one book wonder with an author and it's definitely a skill to constantly consistently crank out bestsellers year in, year out. It still be beloved enough to where if you put out a book that's decades old, people will still want to go ahead and read it. And I find that much more difficult than, you know, consistently, constantly cranking out hits because a book is no joke. Yeah, that's true. So how did you end up on the staff at USC? Go Trojans. Well, I always was interested in education and I started to uh, MC panels there about music and film and television. I guess it was in the 2000s, in, in the early 2000s. 
or the arts as they call it. And I was just, you know, putting together panels for them to talk about music and different media, not only film and television, but video games, et cetera. And then they said, well, why don't you teach that? And so I started to teach it officially uh, in 2015. And part of that course of music and media and culture was um, to teach about mindfulness. That was part of the course. So um, then they approached me and said, you know, the students really like the part about the mindfulness. You should just teach that as well as a separate course. It was Ken Lopez who was chair of the department there. And uh, so I started to do that and, uh, and, and I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's great to, to learn from, you know, these young college students and to share what I know. And how long have you been on the staff at USC for? Since 2015, so five years. Okay, and you mentioned video game music and how I believe video game music is some of the highly most underrated music that's out there because they were taking their cues a lot of like early 90s games were looking at what was going on mainstream wise and let's incorporate it in our games because there was the fight select screen in King of Fighters 94 where they pretty much blatantly just looped the drums from the Jane Child Don't Want to Fall in Love remix, which was produced by <laughs> Teddy Riley. And I just found it amazing how a lot of those gaming companies like Sega, SNK, they were taking what was going on in the new Jack Swing or hip hop at the time and just basically just putting it on a Sega or a Super NES game. I don't know too much. I, I would bring in people from different areas of, mm -hmm. of culture. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I don't know that much about video games, but as guests of mine, I would have people that were experts come in and talk about it. Right. And what was your thoughts on when Epic was doing Crazy Town and Butterfly became a huge breakout hit and it was featured in the movie Sing a couple of years ago? Oh, that record was everywhere. I would be working out in the gym and the record would come on. Um, I, you know, Epic and I are still very close and I'm very, was very happy to see Epic have success. I think he's incredibly talented, a great person. And uh, I'm very proud of every, anything that Epic does. And that, that, that record is, was, was everywhere. You, you, you couldn't escape it. It was game busters. You couldn't get away from it. And with music, mindfulness, and meditation about how everything is interconnected, I think about how, for me, I listen to music not only as an escape, but for me, it's a focus point to where I can be able to focus more on the day job. And I feel a lot more productive because I'm still, I'm calm. I'm like water to where when things are going all around me, I can just be still, have those ripples go off my back and continue to be focused and full of my center self. And the thing I find ironic about this whole thing is that when I listen to the Broken Record podcast with Rick Rubin and see him now about how he's a big proponent, you know, of meditation, of Zen and of being in centerfulness and mindfulness. And it was complete polar opposite of what most of us know Rick Rubin of in the early days of Def Jam and with the Beastie Boys. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, my podcast is about music. 
and mindfulness and meditation. And that's the, the, the main, and mental health in the music industry. And so we interview people that um, uh, are involved one way or another in either meditation, mindfulness, or, uh, and, and music. People that are connected who work in the music industry to meditation and mindfulness or other contemplative practices. And sometimes we'll have experts in mindfulness. We have neuroscientists coming in and, and the head of mindfulness uh, research at, US, at UCLA and USC. And people like Krishna Das, who's an internationally celebrated chant leader who was nominated for the Grammy and performed on the Grammys. Uh, music supervisors of famous shows who practice meditation people that uh, managers like uh, Danny Goldberg who managed Nirvana and ran uh, various record companies who has a meditation practice and talked about his spiritual practices. So, you know, that's our focus is the connections between music and um, spiritual practices and mindfulness and, and gen mental health in, in the music industry. We, we have a mental health crisis in this whole country because of uh, a lot of different reasons, and especially with, with the uh, pandemic. But in the music business, it's very accentuated. And so we, you know, we focus on that as well. Right. And I uh, found very interesting the episode that you did with, I believe she was the head of Music Cares, and just saying how they provide outlets and resources for musicians or people within the industry that maybe are having a difficult time right now because I know it's extremely difficult since no touring, no performance. And some are like, how am I gonna make it week to week or month to month for daily expenses when I can't do what it is that I am gifted at doing? Right, absolutely right. It's, you know, it's always there, whether even when things are well, being an artist in the music is such a precarious life. You're dependent on the whims of the audience. You're sensitive to begin with. To be an artist, you have to be vulnerable to your feelings and to other people's feelings. So, you know, you're starting out with uh, issues already that deal with your emotional balance. And then to put on top of that, you know, the, the, the financial pressures that are specific to, to COVID and then are always there, just makes it very challenging to maintain sanity uh, while working in music. Mm. And how do you maintain your sanity in an industry where it's you're constantly ripping and running, you're living out of a suitcase or out of a studio, city to city, town to town, and you really don't have time to decompress process and breathe because I got to go to this photo shoot. I got to go to this interview. I got to go do this meet and greet. I got to go perform at this venue. And it's pretty much, it's like Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. It's a challenge. That's what we're working on. Yeah, it's a challenge. Right. And I think that is a great thing saying that it's no longer taboo to talk about mental health and how it is important to where you tell somebody that you're not okay. Say, I need to step away. I need to take a break. It's getting too much. But I think the drawback now with the internet 
is that you got to constantly stay in people's faces because it's so by the second where if you take a long lull, if you're the rare few like a Jay-Z, Beyonce, Kendrick Lamar, or Sade, where you can go for years in between putting out records, the average artists or especially the newer artists can't afford that luxury because it's so come and go, come and go quick, 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 quick. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a problem, those pressures. And it's important for artists to see perspective and to understand that there's more to their lives than their bodies, their minds, and their careers. And to be aware of things that are larger than just, you know, their their role as an artist, that they have purpose which is much greater. And to to put that into perspective and to have them get in touch with their humanity, their essential humanity and their incredible powers of awareness. And, you know, you, and, and to learn mental training, to, to get certain skills that you can put things into perspective, that you can step, like you said, step back, that you can have critical distance between what is happening and how you're going to interpret what is happening and how you're going to respond to what is happening mm -hmm. and that way they can build a kind of an equilibrium a kind of a, a balance that can help them stay steady through the ups and downs so there are skills that you can learn there's training that you can do and by the way it's like physical training like exercise that's good too i mean physical training is important in terms of keeping your mental health your physical health and so there, there are these tools, and you mentioned Music Cares, and Music Cares is involved in many of them, but they're available to anybody from multiple places uh, to, to, uh, to help you navigate the, the dangers and the challenges of being in, in the world as a musician or in the music industry at, at large. Mm -hmm. definitely make sure you have yourself all together and when you know that you're not okay it's okay to say i'm not okay i need to step away go do whatever it is you need to do to recharge your batteries reset be your best self your full self because if you're not as i've interviewed people over the years talking about the business it is a business that'll chew you up spit you out treat you like yesterday's news if you let it yeah, it's a good point. You're saying if you're not okay to seek help and therapy doesn't have the stigma, those are good points um, and very helpful. Mm, and you can also get the book that, that will help you out as well. And it's available on Amazon, wherever you get your books. And it's also an e-copy form. It's a good read. I highly recommend. Listen to the podcast, which is available on most streaming platforms and you can be in tune with yourself, listen to some good old conversation and just be your full self and be productive throughout your day. And do you have any shout outs you wanna give before we conclude this interview? And also plug social media if you have any. Well, the social media is Wolf and Tune on Instagram. And I think we're on Twitter too. And we have a Facebook page, it's Wolf and Tune. Um, the book is, uh, as you know, in tune. Music is a matter of fact, I haven't had go, 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 go ahead, go ahead, plug it, plug it, plug away, <laughs> plug away. 
There it is. You can get it. Mindfulness. There it is. Thank you very much. You can get it everywhere. Oh, get it at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and you know the bookstores when they were open. A lot of the the, the books shops have it. Uh, so, and uh, Wolf and Tune is the podcast. And thank you, thank you very much, Mr. Mason, for this uh, incredible lesson that I've learned in the in the history that I was more or less involved with. Um, and like I said, when I write my memoir, I'll have, I'll, the first thing I'm going to do is check with you and make sure I got my facts correct. Man, no thank you for taking the time to do this interview. You can catch this interview on all streaming platforms. Just search Beyond the Album Cover, Anchor Breaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify. Video content is available on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash J85. Subscribe, like, follow, tell a friend, and also facebook.com slash beyond the album cover is where you can get updated with all things related to the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, author, composer, producer, remixer, songwriter, teacher, overall great human being, Mr. Richard Wolf. Thank you so very much for coming on to the podcast and doing this interview. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank Thank you. you.